This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. Thank you. 
Welcome everybody to the August edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection, presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society, and is promoted by Community Radio, Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month, and is repeated on Monday, two weeks later at noon. I'm Helen Baker, and today I have Jan Mackay with me, as Heather has been laid low over the last few days with COVID. We hope she'll be better soon. Yeah, poor old Heather, another skittle down. Now, some snippets from the papers. Prince Charles was welcomed by the Hoi community when he visited the island recently. He took a tour of Malseta House and met with various local organisations at the YM in Longhope. He was also introduced to representatives from local food producers, including the Orkney Dairy, Burnside Cheese and Highland Park Distillery. He would have enjoyed that. Yeah. Getting a wee dram, probably. (laughs) People will be pleased to know that the MV Alfred is back in service between Gills Bay and St Margaret's Hope after being in Belfast for repairs to her bulbous bow. She was damaged when she ran aground on the island of Swanna a few weeks ago. Pentland ferries brought back into service MV Pentalina while the Alfred was away. There has been some talk recently about building a bridge between South Ronaldsea in Orkney and Gills Bay on mainland Scotland as part of a wider investment project for Transport Scotland. It would have to be a huge bridge. Would it be affected by the weather? It can be pretty rough in the Pentland Firth. I really can't imagine one ever being built. The road from Orkney to Inverness also needs to be looked at for improvements. If a bridge was ever to be built, studies would have to take into account the role of existing ferries and involve input from communities that may potentially be affected. What a splendid idea. Oh, is it? I don't know the area. Yes. Mm. I've been in that Pentland Firth when it's not nice, and it's very not nice. (laughs) It wouldn't be nice being on a bridge anyway, would it? Well, at least it's stable. (laughs) Mm. After a two-year absence because of COVID, it's good to see that the county shows have reappeared in both Shetland and Orkney. Judges were delighted at the number and the high standard of entries. By the pictures in the papers, everyone seemed to be enjoying themselves. Nice to think we're getting back to something like normal again. Hmm. I see we're having our AMP show this year too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Another event returning after two years was the Festival of the Horses and the boys' ploughing match in South Ronaldsea. It was lovely to see the girls all decked out in their finery and the boys concentrating so hard on getting straight furrows. The little ploughs that the boys use are really little works of art and are handed down through the family. This festival originated from when young boys copied their fathers whilst playing, and a separate ploughing match allowed young boys the chance to compete against each other. 
The younger children were dressed up as horses and they led the plough. Now, however, the horses have a separate role in the festival. The festival starts with a procession of the horses. Then they are judged for harness and decoration. While this is going on, the ploughmen are waiting behind the horses for their ploughs to be judged in the categories of best kept metal and best kept wooden plough. Then they all move to the sands of right for the ploughing match, where the boys plough a plot of sand, four feet square. Spectators are welcome to come to the event, but if dogs are brought, they must be kept in the car or on a lead and supervised so that they don't destroy the furrows before they are judged. <laughs> oh, you can just see a dog having a lovely time running <laughs> through all the fresh ploughed sand, can't you? <laughs> and some upset little boys. It would. I like that they have best kept categories as well. Yes. Encouraging the children to, to Look care after for things. things yes. yes. Here's a date for your diary. Shetland Wool Week is back and it will be held from September 24th to October the 2nd. This is a festival that takes place in Shetland in the last week of September. It's packed with classes of knitting, spinning, dyeing, weaving, tours, exhibitions, open studios, teas and talks. It's a celebration of Shetland's wonderful textile heritage, and the hope is that there's something for everyone. For the past two years, it's been run as a virtual event, so it's great to see it coming back as a physical event, even though with a slightly reduced programme. It sounds really interesting. If you can't make it this year, maybe start making some plans for next year. Yes, it's amazing. They have people going from all over the world. I can imagine. Mm. I've just taken up knitting again. It's just lovely. It's mm. very therapeutic. It is, isn't it? Mm. Police in Shetland have pledged to deal robustly with antisocial behaviour after it emerged fixed penalty notices had been issued for public urination and alcohol consumption. These offences were revealed in a police report which came amid a backdrop of antisocial reports in Lerwick Town Centre. Concern has been raised that late-night revellers in Harrison Square and Lerwick Lanes are making life a misery for residents. Many of those gathering in these areas appear to be unaware it was an offence to drink alcohol in the street, and they could be charged. Hmm. Same problem, doesn't matter where you are in the world. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> Concerns have been escalating over recent months about the impact of foreign gill netters who have been blamed for overfishing the waters around Shetland, squeezing out local fleets and polluting the seas with their discarded nets. These cheap monofilament nets continue to ghost fish for decades, cruelly killing marine life and birds as well as fouling up propellers. Yes. It's an awful sight to see a dead animal caught in a net. A mm. hundred years ago, in July 1922, rough on cats. Every now and then, notice is taken of the high rate of speed at which motor-driven vehicles pass through Stromnes streets to the discomfort and imminent danger of pedestrians. The splashing and dirtying of house and shop windows an instant death to cats. A large yellowish-coloured motor car was coming down Porteous Bray on Wednesday 
when a pretty, fluffy-haired cat belonging to Mr W. Flett, Flesher, was quietly crossing the street. It'll never cross the street again. In a thrice, the car shot down the bray and one of the wheels passed clean over poor pussy before one could wink. It sprang a few yards after the motor passed and tumbled over dead. Something to be thankful for is that many bairns who were playing about the street escaped. But it is often only a matter of luck. Motorists should go easy. Mm. Mm. Still happening today. Yeah, well, mm. apparently, if, if you um, happen to be walking along the main street of Stromness and a car comes barreling along, mm. you do have to take evasive action. Right, yes. Mm. Hop into a doorway. Mm. Yes. Poor old puss. Mm. Here we are talking about him 100 years later, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what do all these things have in common? Chunks of wax, barrels of flour, panels for house construction, boxes of china, whale vertebrae, messages in bottles, a little crocheted beer, a ship's door, a wooden mask, and a 55-foot monster, to name just a few. At one time or other, these things have washed ashore on Stronsay. Next month, at their community centre, they are putting on a display of these and other items found washed up on the shore around the island. It would be interesting to go and have a look. Yes, I wonder how old some of the things are. Mm. They might have been washing around in the seas for a long time, mightn't they? I'm quite intrigued by the 55-foot monster. Yes. <laughs> what a shame we can't pop along, Helen. Yes. To those that don't know, wildlife monitoring is useful in building a picture of the population size of the native species in Orkney, which includes our very own Orkney vole. We want to find out roughly how many there are across different designated sites and see how that changes over time. The Orkney vole, which is unique to Orkney, is monitored twice a year and this is done by volunteers. New recruits have one-on-one -on -one training on the site they will monitor. The survey sites contain a variety of habitats and it is the generosity of landowners giving access to their land that makes this possible. The key to vol detective work is to observe and record any signs of activity. The voles are elusive, moving through channels and dense grasses and under heather. They hide in this and are hidden from view, and also from their predators like stoats. One of the signs to look for, covered in training, is grass clippings which are remnants of voles feeding or looking for their poo. <laughs> Standard observation things, aren't they, really? Yes. <laughs> All right. What are Kirk session records? If you're doing your family history, they can be quite useful. The Kirk session is the local court of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. It's made up of the minister, moderator or chair, the elders and a session clerk the chief elder. Sometimes there was no session clerk, only a clerk who kept records. The records can include minutes of session, meetings, accounts, communication or communicant roles, the poor fund. What was the role of the Kirk session? 
Historically, the Kirk Session dealt with parish matters, spiritual, moral and social, as well as the general runnings of the Church. The Session took parishioners to task for things like immoral behaviour, particularly fornication, Sabbath-breaking, swearing, fighting or not attending church. There was a range of punishments with public repentance or penance the most well-known. Until the Poor Law Scotland Act of 1845, the Kirk Session was also the key agent in poor relief. This is one reason why illegitimate children were such a concern. Unless the father was identified and took responsibility, the parish might have to support the mother and child financially. Some Kirk Session records contain baptisms, marriages and burials that are not included in the old parish registers. These can sometimes be quite substantial lists. In other cases, they are sporadic. Pre-1841, population lists and roles of male heads of families are two resources you may find. The former, fairly rare, the latter much more common. The National Records of Scotland catalogue records will often include a note about these elements. Very broadly, Kirk Session records are most useful before 1855. During the 19th century, the declining role of the church in society generally meant that records focused increasingly on strictly church matters. In more rural areas, this change was slower. Censures for anti-nuptial fornication were relatively common in the one-place study parish in the 1870s, for example. The Kirk Session would refer more serious cases, serial fornicators, for example, to the Presbytery. This is the next level up and comprised of the minister and an elder from each parish in the area. The highest court of the Church of Scotland is the General Assembly, which meets annually. Until the 1990s, there was also Synod, the court between Presbytery and the General Assembly. Kirk Session Minutes give space to ordinary people who may feature in no other record beyond a few censuses and possibly a baptism, marriage or burial register. You may find no more than a name, perhaps recording your ancestor as a new communicant or receiving money from the Poor's Fund. Don't discount that. One set of times three great-grandparents were known to have died after a date in 1826, for at that time the local church gave them money for a particular purpose. In other cases, Kirk Session Minutes can provide the vital information to break through a brick wall by naming the father of an illegitimate child. You may find out quite a lot about the circumstances also. Windhouse, pronounced Windhus, is reportedly the most haunted house in Shetland. It is said that the ruins we can see on the hillside in mid now were originally built in 1707, right on top of an ancient burial ground. Abandoned since the 1920s, the inhabitants now include the lady in silk, a man in a top hat, the spectre of a dog and the ghost of a servant girl. The lady in silk is alleged to have been a mistress or housekeeper of the house 
who met an untimely end by falling down the stairs and breaking her neck. It's said that she can be seen walking three times round in a circle at the top of the stairs before sighing and disappearing. She is named the Lady in Silk because of the audible rustling sound of her dress and petticoats. In 1880, a woman's skeleton was discovered under the floorboards of the main stairs during renovations. The skeleton is believed to belong to the Lady in Silk. A tall man wearing a top hat and a long black coat has been seen wandering around the house. An account found on microfilm from 1887 reads, While some workmen who were engaged in repairing the manor house of Windhoof were removing some debris from the back of the house, they came upon the skeleton of a human being. It was apparently that of a man of large stature, as the bones measured fully six feet long. It was lying in the position it had been put down, the arms folded over the breast. It was only a small distance under the ground, and there was no evidence of there ever being a coffin, which gave rise to an opinion that it had been a murder. But if it was, it is not in the memory of any of the inhabitants, nor do any remember any person ever being missed. A fascinating record recounts the story of a scribe who counted 20 builders arriving to rebuild the house in 1801. He noticed that only 19 men left, and when he mentioned this, he was dismissed as talking rubbish. The story goes that the night the men finished, they got drunk. One was killed in a fight, and the others removed a door, lifted the door stone, dug a hole, and packed the man into it. Later, when men were repairing the door, they dug down and removed the skeleton of a large man who was supposed to have been haunting the house. Some say the man stopped haunting Windhoos after his bones were removed. The ghost of a servant girl has been seen climbing an invisible set of steps on the property, while the spectre of a collie dog has also been observed. In the early 1900s, two men who repaired a window in the house took off a nailed-up shutter and a bundle fell on the floor. It was a child's skeleton wrapped in a sheepskin. The gatehouse to this haunted ruin is now a camping bod where the bravest of you can sleep for the night, should you wish. Have you ever had the courage to visit Windhoose yourself? Have you been there? <laughs> no. No, I've no. never heard of it. No. I don't think I would. <laughs> would you? Perhaps in the daytime. Yes, in a group. <laughs> Born April 26, 1860, in Orpha, Orkney, Margaret Graham went on to become a nurse and missionary and devoted her life to the children of Nigeria. After qualifying as a teacher, she moved to Glasgow to train as a nurse. It was during this time that the government was recruiting nurses to go to Calabar in Nigeria. Margaret decided to go and left in 1895. She went to nurse in the Calabar Hospital, where she was one of just two nurses. In 1901, the British government launched an expedition to pacify a particular tribe, the Aros. Margaret was the nurse on this expedition. She received the Africa General Service Medal, Aro Expedition. And after 10 years of service in Calabar, she was awarded the Cross of the Order of St John. 
She retired in 1919 and travelled back to Orkney. After only two years at home, she went back to Nigeria. This time she went as a missionary nurse and was based in Arochuku, where she stayed for 11 years until her death in 1933. As a missionary nurse, she ran a dispensary, visited the nearby villages helping the sick, the outcast and the hungry. Babies were brought to the mission and she enjoyed healing the children and training women in childcare. She became so devoted to her work that at her request, her salary went directly to pay for medicine at the mission. Mm. What a woman. Yes, yes. for sure. Mm. Mm. And it wouldn't have been easy back in those days no, either. No, I imagine the contrast in climate between Nigeria and Orkney would have been quite stark mm. too. Mm. Well, that's it for us now. It's time to sign off again. Keep safe, everyone, and look after yourselves. Bye for now, and we'll see you in September. Yeah.